Good evening. The text for our message this morning is Psalm 129. Please turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 129. And while you're turning there, I want to just draw your attention to the heading of the psalm. It's actually the same heading that we have in this portion of the Psalter, a song of ascents or degrees. We find this in Psalms 120 through 134. Now, the common understanding of the significance of this title is that it refers to the Jewish custom of singing this portion from the Psalter as God's people ascended or went up to Jerusalem for their annual feasts. Psalm 129, I'll be reading the psalm in its entirety. Hear now once again the holy words of a living and true God. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let us pray together. O blessed Heavenly Father and Almighty God, how we praise you for who you are and all the things that you have done and how you have built your church in this earth, even that despite all of of its persecutors and its enemies, it flourishes. O Lord, we think about how it all began with the Lord, a few fishermen, a tax collector, and look, O Lord, praise you for how the church has filled the earth, even according to your promise, O Lord, that, that, that mountain, that, that stone that would crush all the worldly kingdoms would grow into a mountain, and then that mountain would come and fill the whole earth. We praise you, Lord, for the work of your kingdom in this earth. And we pray as your humble servants, O Lord, that we may do our part, whatever you may call us to do, in the spreading of that kingdom. Please be with us now, O Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, indeed may Israel proclaim it, And note the repetition here. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. 
This psalm opens rather abruptly, doesn't it? It's as if the psalmist is suddenly caught in the middle of some deep meditation. Or perhaps he speaks out with a feeling of agitation. Greatly, or many a time, they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. But is this literally in respect to Israel? That is, Jacob, as he was persecuted by his elder brother Esau? Or rather, should we consider the name here Israel in a more collective sense? For the same time that the psalmist speaks as an individual, greatly have they afflicted me, he also speaks as a body of people. Let Israel now say, So what is meant here more specifically by the name Israel? Well, we see in a parallel expression, verse 5 here in the psalm, that Israel is called Zion. Zion. God's covenant people. The people of God. And I think fairly enough, by way of extension, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we also read these words, even from my youth, So what does that mean if we are speaking of Israel in a collective sense? Actually, as Scripture interprets Scripture, we find an answer in the prophet of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, we read there, She, that is Israel, shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So here the Scripture is saying that as God's people was delivered from slavery um, in Egypt and came out and spoiled the Egyptians, that this was a time referred to as the youth of Israel. But having given just a little bit of a context, I want to ask the question, what is the psalmist's main point here? What is his main point? This is his main point. That even though Israel has often been persecuted, even from his childhood, so to speak, nonetheless, they, that is the wicked, have not prevailed against her. The wicked have not prevailed against Israel or God's people. Indeed, this is the voice of God's people. And now we don't often have a summary of an entire psalm just in the opening verses, but I believe that's the import of this entire psalm. They they have not prevailed against me. And we see the same point, the same message in the Gospels, don't we? For example, as we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the words of the Lord Jesus, He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall what? That's right, shall not prevail against her. The wicked shall not prevail over God's covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ. That's the main point. Now, this is not to say that God's people will not be persecuted even in our own generation. I'm not saying that. Indeed, antagonism against the church in our day seems to be on the rise. 
doesn't it? Recently, I heard a Jewish speaker on the radio ask the question, who is the most hated group in America today? And he said, which group is it politically correct to hate in our culture? And though he was a Jewish man, his answer was not the Jews, but Christians. Let's take a look at a few current events. And for greater relevance, I will limit these examples to our Western world. In January of this year, the Finnish Evangelical Lutheran minister, Johanna Pohoyola, was placed on trial for the hate crime of authorizing the publication of a pamphlet which presented the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality. Reverend Pohoyola was fined and acquitted in March, but the prosecution may appeal to the appellate court. Last summer in Canada, at least 20 churches were vandalized or burned down to the ground. A week later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau commented on this anti-church crime wave and said, and I quote, that's not the way to go. In the past year or more, Canadian pastors such as James Coates, Arthur Pulaski, and Tim Stevens have been arrested and imprisoned for preaching and holding church services. One of these pastors, Arthur Pulaski, after he was released from jail, spoke at an outdoor prayer service in Portland, Oregon. So now we're speaking about America in particular. But this church service was disrupted by members of Antifa who proceeded to spray mace in the face of Pastor Pulaski. During this attack, one of the members of Antifa cried out to the Christian group, Where is your God now? It was as if they were quoting directly from the Psalms. As we read from Psalm 115, why should the, the nations or the heathen say, where is their God? Or as we just sang in Psalm 42, as with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? What is more, the Antifa members threw flash bombs into the midst of these gathering Christians who included young children. According to one eyewitness, a flash bomb was thrown into a group of children who ranged in age from four months to ten years old. Reportedly, the police did little to protect these Christians from the violent members of Antifa. Here's the point. My brothers and sisters, we are currently witnessing a kind of persecution against the church in North America as has never been seen before. And this is taking place not only in Finland or Canada, but even here in America, the home of the free and the brave. Now, the Scripture always tells us the way that things are, but the Lord also has given us His Word to comfort and to encourage us. Listen again to the words from our text, Psalm 129, when the psalmist says that the wicked have not prevailed against me. And listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as we read from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
Take heart, my brothers and sisters. Be encouraged from the Word of God this evening. Are you or someone dear to you suffering for the sake of Christ? Then be assured and be comforted. For the Word of God is teaching us here that the church of Jesus Christ will be delivered from all her enemies. And you will see the Lord in His righteousness avenging all of His and our enemies. I want you to remember that. But look with me for a moment at the structure of this little psalm. The first part of the psalm is about the way that God's covenant people are afflicted. And the second part is about the way of the Lord's vengeance against those who persecute the church. These two parts will also serve as the two parts of our sermon this evening. And right in the middle of the psalm is a clear point of transition between these two parts. It comes in the form of these words in verse 4. The Lord, or Jehovah, is righteous. Jehovah is righteous. <clears throat> and what I would like to do this, more, this evening <clears throat> is first talk about the judgments of the Lord in the second part of our passage before we consider the suffering of His people in the first part. So please follow along with me in your Bibles, beginning in verse 4 of Psalm 129, verse 4, to the end of the psalm. We read there in the second part of verse 4, He has cut the cords of the wicked. Actually, I'm going to defer this text as well, because I want to show you how it's connected to the preceding third verse. But in verse 5 we read, Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turn back. The idea here is that as the wicked retreat and defeat from the church of Jesus Christ and their Lord, they will be confused, ashamed, and disappointed. Like Haman of old, as we read in the book of Esther, their desire against the righteous will not be satisfied. And then we come to one of the colorful metaphors found in this song. As we come to verses 6-8, through eight, we read about what might be thought of as a kind of harvest of the wicked. In verse 6, the wicked are compared to the grass on the housetops. And the grass is presented in a fashion as if it was a crop to harvest. And we see the same metaphor used in other parts of Scripture. And if you care to re uh, write this down, in Isaiah 37, verse 27, and 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 26. But I'm not going to take the time to go to those places. But we do read that the inhabitants of fortified cities shall become, quote, as the grass on the housetops which is scorched before it is grown up. So we see the same metaphor in these other places in Scripture as we have here in Psalm 129. Now, the houses in Judea typically had flat roofs. They were often covered with dirt where grass could easily grow and for a short time flourish. 
But since the soil was shallow, the green grass would wither and then be scorched by the heat of the sun. Does this remind you of the Lord's parable of the four soils? We read about the second kind of soil where the seed fell, and I quote, they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. My brothers and sisters, in our psalm, this is a picture that the Lord is giving to us of those who persecute us as the church of Christ. Though the enemies of Christ and His church may appear at first to be vigorous and flourishing like the grass on these rooftops, yet in due time they will be weakened. They will shrivel up. And though the persecution may be of the cruelest kind against God's people, it will not last long, just like the withering grass on top of a flat roof. Then we read in verse 7, speaking of the grass, that the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. This, my friends, is a picture of absurdity. Imagine harvesting withered grass like a crop from a flat rooftop. There will not be enough to fill the reaper's hand. And similarly, imagine the binder's arms filled with sheaves of just a few blades of withered grass. That's the picture here in our psalm. And this means that under the blistering heat of the Lord's righteous judgment, the persecutors of the church will shrink in number and become powerless. And instead of realizing their wicked designs, all their labor will prove futile. My brothers and sisters, be encouraged by the word of the Lord here before us tonight. Those who hate the church of Jesus Christ will not prevail against her. That means even you and me, if we are in Christ. And then the psalm closes in verse 8 with another picture related to a harvest. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That's what we read there. Now, it was a custom to bless harvesters in their labor. In fact, we read in the second chapter of Ruth that he that is Boaz said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. But what exactly do we read here in our text? Take a look at verse 8. What does it say? It says, Nor, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In other words, the Scripture here is telling us that no one, not even a passerby, so to speak, according to the metaphor, will bless the works of the wicked. My brothers and sisters, I don't want you to miss the character of the language here. The language of the Lord's judgment. 
What do we see, for example, in verse 5? May all who hate Zion be put to shame. Or verse 6, let them, let them be like the grass, and so on. And in verse 8, nor do, or another translation says, neither let those who pass by them say this blessing. My brothers and sisters, do you see that all of these expressions are actually in the form of prayer, aren't they? Let, let all, let them, neither let. These are petitions offered up to the Lord. What does that teach us? It teaches us that it is proper for us to pray against the enemies of the church of Christ. Yes, we should first pray that those enemies may be converted. Who knows, maybe one of them is like Saul of Tarsus, that one time great persecutor of the church. The the Lord radically changed, and he became the Apostle Paul. Yet, if the wicked will not repent, we should pray that the Lord would bring down his righteous judgment upon them. As we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And remember the words of our text, Greatly have they afflicted me. And so we come to our second heading, that part of our psalm, which gives us a specificity to our affliction. And we find here another metaphor, perhaps even more vivid and colorful than the last one. We read in verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. As we read, again, this metaphor is seen in another place of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 23, it speaks of tormentors who have said, lie down that we may cross over. Put down your back on the ground and like the street for those who walk on it. Now this metaphor, the plowers plowed upon my back, is intentionally graphic. The words, however, seem almost poetical, don't they? The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. And I think we should not shy away from the imagery here. Now, in our minds, as we first read it, we may initially imagine what it would be like to think of these words in a literal sense. As if a man may lie flat on the ground, just like we read in Isaiah. Lie down that we may cross over. Put down your back as the ground. And then a tormentor with a team of oxen and his plow cross across your back. Now, of course, this is figurative language. Yet this metaphor is rich. And its imagery is inseparably tied to the meaning of the text. So what should be our interpretation of this metaphor? Well, I'm sure as many of you know, the farmer, when he plows, is merciless with the soil. 
in his plow, and he has no sympathy for the earth as he cuts and tears and digs it up. When he sees a clot of dirt, he breaks it up. When he runs into a stone, he removes it, or if it's too big, he goes around it. But he is determined to be thorough and to finish his job well. He wants to be confident as he plows deep, as he digs deep, that he may sow his seed with confidence. Yes, the Word of God here is telling you and me that this is a picture of persecution. How cruel and thorough are the wicked in tormenting the saints. They persecute the church with all their strength, with all of their cunning, and then they take great delight in doing so. Oh, how the wicked hate Zion. They hate you and me. And their hatred is not only evil, it's irrational. And it's not only irrational, it's, it's unnatural. How they love to tear up the soil of our earthy backs. Remember, when God first made man, He shaped His body from the dust of the earth. So we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And then the Lord breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and he became a living creature. So actually, in a certain sense, we do have earthy backs because we were made from the dust of the earth. So what does that teach us? Man was created indeed as a glorious creature, made in God's own divine image. And you can't say that about any other creature. And yet at the same time, we are but vessels of clay, made from the dust of the earth. And while our tormentors run their plows across our backs, we must be taught about our frailty and the lowliness of our own condition. And we must pray to the Lord that He would use the persecution in our lives to humble us. To humble us. So that we would remember that indeed our backs are made merely from the dust of the earth. And as we are told, from the dust we were made, and to the dust we shall return. We come now to that part that I promised to address in the fourth verse, where we read, He has cut the cords of the wicked. In the Hebrew, the words there may be rendered as to cut in two or to hack in pieces, or as we have it here in the ESV, simply to cut. But what exactly do the cores refer to? We may first think of the words from the second psalm, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cores from us. Yet as I found commentaries in my study, I think it might be more natural to see this expression connected to the immediate context, the the third verse which immediately precedes it. 
That is, that when we read that the plowers plow upon our backs and that the Lord cuts the cords, we see that He is cutting the reins which tie the plow to the oxen. And so now the plowers will no longer be able to plow upon our backs. For the Lord, that is, Jehovah who is righteous, has cut the cords of the wicked. And as we return to the metaphor in verse 3, we must consider the second part as well, the second part of this metaphor. They made long their furrows. How deep and long are these furrows indeed. Yet though our enemies mean it for evil, hear how we may use these furrows for good. As the Puritan John Trapp puts it, God's people do sow the seed of prayer in the long furrows which those plowers made on their backs. Do you understand? That as our persecutors plow these furrows upon our backs, we can plant seeds of prayer in those furrows. And the Lord hears us as we cry out to Him in our affliction. In a similar way, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry suggests that these furrows are used by the Lord, by the Lord, not just for us to pray, but by the Lord, so that He may sow the seeds of His grace. Isn't that wonderful? We often find seasons of abundance of grace in our lives at the same time as we experience much affliction. And there's something more here I want you to consider this evening about these furrows. These long and deep furrows may allude in particular to the stripes on the back which result from whipping. And so in this way, the metaphor may remind us of the suffering of Christ. As we read in the Gospel of Matthew, and when He had scourged Jesus... Pilate delivered him to be crucified. And again in John chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now it was customary with the Romans in the whips that they used that they would typically tie at the end of those leather cords, they would tie fragments of bone. So when someone is struck with a whip, not only would you have those bloody stripes, but those little pieces of sharp bone would actually tear up the flesh of the back. And so, like the plowers tearing up the soil of our backs, such was the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the scourging of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament. We read in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, And in the whipping of Christ, we actually find the gospel itself. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, Upon him, that is upon Christ, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That 
my brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Do we see Jesus in this psalm, Psalm 129? As I have said, the text presents the speaker as an individual, and yet at the same time, he identifies himself collectively as Israel and Zion. So here we have one body of people, yet they are identified as one person. Does that sound familiar? The church is the body of Christ, made up of many members, many people, but with one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus identifies Himself with His people. I mentioned Saul of Tarsus earlier, but do you recall the words of the Lord Jesus as He intercepted Saul on the road to Damascus? What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what Jesus said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with us. The church is the body of Christ. Now, we don't know what sort of affliction may come to us personally in our own lives. And when you are in the midst of suffering, it may indeed seem interminable. Our suffering may extend over a large part of our lives. The Scripture does not give us any guarantees against that. And it may be that the Lord will call us to lay down our lives for Him. Are you... Am I willing to follow the Lord Jesus wherever He may take us? Remember His own words. He said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. As we close, I would like to give you an illustration from church history. Like the Canadian ministers we spoke of, the French Protestant Marie Duron was in prison for her faith. And though she did not die in prison like so many other Huguenots, she was locked up for 38 years. Remarkably, After she was released from prison, she still lived for another eight years. But Marie Durand led a hard life. Whatever we may suffer for the Lord in this life, it will likely not compare to what she suffered. In 1730, at the age of 19, Marie was arrested by the authority of a letter stamped with the king's seal. She was a newlywed. And as she and her husband, Matthew Serre, were settling into her father's home, the dragoons, that is, the king's soldiers, broke in. 
Only two years earlier, her father, Etienne Durand, at the age of 72, was arrested and imprisoned at a fort in Brescoux. In a letter to his daughter, Marie, Etienne wrote, The more I suffer, the more I reflect on God. Doesn't that remind you about the seeds that are sprinkled in the furrows of our backs? After the arrest, the newlyweds, Marie and Matthew, would never see each other again in this life. Marie's husband was sent to the same prison where her father, Etienne, was incarcerated. And Marie was sent to a prison for Huguenot women called La Tour de Constance, or the Tower of Constance. But what was their crime? Why was Marie, her husband, and her father all imprisoned? What did they do? You see, it wasn't what they did, but Marie had a brother by the name of Pierre Ducrong, who was a Huguenot pastor. He preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to thousands. That was their crime. They were members of the family of the outlawed preacher. Now, the king's men could not find the Huguenot pastor, so, and, and it was because, quite understandably, he was always on the run. So, in cruel retribution, they persecuted all of his family. Two years after Marie's arrest, the king's men finally caught up with her brother. He was arrested, condemned, and hung on the gallows. And though they finally got their man, his loved ones were not released from prison. After her brother's death, Marie remained at the Tower of Constance for another 36 years. There is one well-known artifact from Marie's time at the Tower of Constance. It's a word carved in one of the stones of the rim that surrounds the circular opening in the center of the prison floor. And the word is resiste, which is an old French term meaning resist. You can still see this word etched in the stone today. In fact, when, when my family and I uh, lived in France for a short time, we visited the site and we saw the stone. Though the word resist was engraved by a weak hand, it was written on a durable stone. Our faith is like that, isn't it? Even if Christ's enemies kill our frail bodies, they cannot extinguish the enduring faith of the church triumphant. Marie Durand suffered for most of her life for the sake of her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Yet in the end, they did not take her life. And as a member of the body of Christ, she was victorious over her enemies. So we learn from this little psalm that no matter how much we suffer for Christ, and no matter how severely we are persecuted, in the end, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. 
and the wicked shall not. And we also learn from this little psalm that because Jehovah is righteous, He will execute His justice on all of His and our enemies. So let us comfort one another with these words from the Word of God here. Let us hope, let us see this certain hope in the Scripture. Yet, they have not prevailed against Me. This is the voice of the church. And this is the voice of Christ. Let us pray. O oh, blessed Lord God, Heavenly Father, how we praise You and thank You when at times the odds seem so far against us, and yet by Your Holy Spirit we persevere. And we should remember in church history that we have not been the first generation of people, of Your people, to go through suffering. O oh Lord, Tribulation will come, as the Lord said, as if it is inevitable. Tribulation will come. But we pray, O oh Lord, that we may have that faith, that You would give us that faith, and that we would take heart. For indeed, the Lord Jesus has overcome the world. So we pray, O oh Lord, encourage us tonight. Give us that hope by Your Holy Spirit. And be with us now, we pray, in the remainder of this service and in this Sabbath evening. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.